If you have your copy of God's Word with you this morning, I invite you to turn with me to the book of John, chapter 2, for our passage. Today we find ourselves at the wedding of Cana, which records the first miracle Jesus performed in his public ministry. And this miracle will start a string of miracles. Over the next several weeks, we will come in contact with six others, which causes the first half of the book of John, John um, really from chapter 2 to, um, to the end of chapter 11, to be called the book of miracles. You can really slice the, the letter in half from here forward. And this first half being the letter of miracles, because it focuses predominantly on these seven miracles that Jesus performs. And each of these miracles will give us a better understanding, a a fuller idea of who he is and what he came to do. And then from there forward, uh, the book takes a hard shift and um, goes away from the miracles and ministry of Jesus more to the glory of the suffering and triumph of the cross. And so the first half, you kind of get miracles. The second half, you get glory. And so we're going to focus on miracles for the next little while. And we ask ourselves, why? Why is this significant? Why um, focus on these various uh, miracles, these seven miracles in particular? Well, John has told us the purpose of this book, the purpose of his writing is to know Jesus Christ as Son of God and Savior of sinners. And that by knowing Jesus is Son of God and Savior of sinners, you might believe in him and have life in his name. And so there's something about this miracle this morning that we will hear from the Word of God that should teach you who Jesus is what he came to do, and call you to believe in him. And so I want you to be looking for those things, be listening for those things. How can I know Jesus this day? How can I understand him better? How does this passage draw me to him? So with that being said, let us read the word of the Lord, beginning in John chapter 2. I want to start in verse 1 and read through the 12th verse. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum when his mother, with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. This is the word of the Lord. Let us now go to him in prayer and ask his blessing upon this time. Let us again pray. 
Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth that it contains. Thank you for this opportunity, this hour to study it, to sing it, to pray it, and to proclaim it. Lord, we ask that you would give us spiritual eyes to see and spiritual ears to hear, that we might believe in your word and it might draw us closer to you. Lord, we ask your blessing upon this time and ask you be with us now in Christ's name. Amen. There's only a limited amount of space when writing a letter. This is more so or especially the case in biblical times when letters were written on scrolls. Paper um, was expensive. It took a great deal of effort and energy to write. And so we find in the letters or in the gospels in particular an interesting process. Some things are included, some things are left out. Some stories are told and repeated. Some stories are given minor significance and some are given major significance. And each one comes from the author's background and perspective, of course, being influenced by the power of the Holy Spirit. But here we have the first miracle. And it's given a predominant space in John's gospel. So much so we ask ourselves why. Why is this given to us this day? Why is this recorded? Why is this so important that we understand this wedding and this scene and what Jesus did here? We also should ask, this is the first time the disciples are getting to see Jesus in action, if you will. Remember, Jesus has got a following of 12 guys now that are going with him. They're doing seminary on foot for three years. They're going to walk with Jesus. They're going to hear his prayers. They're going to witness his ministry. They're going to follow him. They're going to learn from him. They're going to take it all in and then in turn, with the exclusion of Judas, send it out and spread the good news of the gospel to the world. Why was it important that they witnessed this wedding, this event, this scene, this moment? And I want to make the case this morning that there are at least three lessons that we learn from this passage, from this miracle. These would be lessons the disciples would have learned and um, the original audience would have learned as well. In each of these lessons, they really get to the heart of those questions we're asking. What is the purpose? Why is this here? And they are this. First, this passage, this miracle teaches us to listen to Jesus. This passage teaches us to listen to Jesus. Second, this passage teaches us to behold his glory. Behold the glory of Jesus. And then third, believe in him. Believe in him. Listen to him. Behold his glory. Believe in him. These are the lessons we learn from this miracle and so would you please follow along with me as we consider each of these, looking first at the first five verses. And I love that there's a point made here by one of the commentators, even before we jump into verse one, that I think it's worthwhile to bring up. And I'll, I'll give you a quote. Jesus being invited to the wedding is interesting. Clearly, he is not perceived as an antisocial killjoy although there may be a family link behind the invitation and thus the reason for him being there. So what? What does that mean? Jesus cared about people. He was a social being. 
He interacted with others. He took part in this world. Remember, the the primary task, he's come to live a life of perfect and full obedience, to be the sacrificial lamb for his people to die and be the savior of sinners. Well, he could have stayed at home until that last week, right? Realistically, Jesus could have. He could have shut himself in a room, said, bring me books, bring me place, things to study. If there's someone I need to talk to, bring them to me. I'm going to hide out up here, and um, good luck. But he didn't. No, Jesus walked. He ministered. He fished. He played. He enjoyed fellowship. He had parties. He interacted with other people. He went to weddings. And so there's something to be said about the fact that Jesus' ministry, Jesus' preaching, his, his method of sharing his message to his people, it wasn't just through word, it also was through deed. And that can only be done by being with others. You, you cannot be a hermit and live out the gospel. Now, different situations and circumstances may necessitate that, but that's beside the point. But I, I bring that up because it is fascinating that our Savior... Spent time with others. And we're not exactly sure why he went to this wedding. We, we really don't know. Um, the likeliest guess is that this was some form of family. That there was a familial relationship um, in Jesus' family to the wedding party and on one side or the other. We think this because his mother is also in attendance. Interestingly enough, the disciples are also in attendance. And, you know... Usually if you go to a wedding, I don't know how many you have gone to recently, if, if it's a very generous couple or a, a very, um, you're close to the wedding, you may get like a plus one, or at best you'll get like a plus one and kids. Um, but think about it here. Jesus, he gets, there's him, there's his mother, and then 12. I mean, we're talking a plus 14 here, or a plus 13. You've really got to like a guy to let him bring 13 guys to your, to your wedding, right? That's a, that's a strain on resources. But whatever the, the reason he went, we know that he was invited and we know that he graciously went. In Jewish culture, weddings were a lot more elaborate than they are now, if you can believe that. Typically, weddings took at least a week and it was a, a massive feast, a massive, massive festival, a, an opportunity of celebration. And each day, um, people would come and people would go. And so this was an interesting circumstance that took place. Verse 3 tells us, When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. So imagine you're preparing, you're getting ready. Many times a Jewish wedding, it took a year to prepare. And you're halfway through the week, and you're out of wine. You're out of drink. You've still got several days to go. This party's not over. Now, many of us would find ourselves saying, well, that's unfortunate, and then we would carry on. But this was significant in Jewish culture. You see, the wedding feast and the ability for the groom to provide this feast, it, 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 it was a symbol of that marriage. It was a symbol of what that marriage was going to be like. And running out of resources, especially in the middle of this party would have said to outsiders, I cannot financially care for my wife and my future children because I cannot care for this event. It really would have been an offense to find yourself in this circumstance. 
And so this is, this is not some, oh, man, we're, we're out of the sausage balls. You know, well, didn't go eat some ham. Like, you could, you could make it up. This was a big deal. This, this was significant. And it's a real problem. Now, another thing that's interesting about this passage, we have no idea why Mary takes it on herself. Why is Mary concerned that this party ran out of wine? We don't know. But what we do know, and, and really, we can make this a one-point sermon. There's a problem. Something's wrong. Something is, is out of how it should be. Mary recognizes the problem, and where does she turn? One-point sermon. There's a problem in her life. Where does Mary go? To Jesus. Right there. There's the gospel. For any of us, when there are problems in our lives that are out of our control, that are above and beyond our ability, where should we go? To Jesus. She turns to her son because she believes he can solve the problem. She is saying, in essence, Jesus is capable of dealing with this matter. Whether it is insignificant, whether whatever the implications and all those things, whatever's going on, she sees this as important enough to go to Jesus because she believes in him. And she believes he has the ability and the power to act. Oh, what a lesson for us this day. Again, if you take nothing else away this morning, here's the gospel in and of itself. There's an issue at this event, in this situation. Mary shows us the answer. When there's problems in our life, we should go to the one who can solve them. Then we get something interesting. We, we need to do some interpretive work here. Mary brings this problem to Jesus. And Jesus responds to his mother. Now, I want to be very careful, and hopefully I didn't, um, I didn't articulate wrongly earlier. I have to be careful with this passage. Because reading this sentence, most of us would read it like this, because this is how we would say this sentence nowadays. Woman, what does this have to do with me? If that's your, your mindset, if that's your temptation, stop. Um, particularly you children in this room. I will always tell you to do what Jesus does, do what Jesus teaches, follow Jesus' example. But please do not go home today for lunch or this afternoon and go up to your mom and go, woman, where's my lunch? <laughs> I am not responsible for what comes after that. Um, you deserve it and you will learn a lesson in and of itself. I would be responsible though if I didn't tell you in the Greek, this is a title of endearment. This is not a derogatory stab at his mother. He's not, woman, what are you talking about? Actually, the NIV, I think, translates this really well. It translates this as dear woman or dear mother. He is actually showing a, a title of respect. We know this because, again, he will use this very same word, but at the cross. He will use it again in a different circumstance with his mother. And so please don't take our, our normal or our instinctive cultural uh, way of reading that as it, it is. No, he is humbling himself. He is submitting, you are my mother. You are my caregiver. You have provided for me. I will yield to you. And at the same time, he is rebuking her. 
He is rebuking her in this passage. It's not in the way that we would say it. He says, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Jesus came to reveal his glory, to proclaim his sovereign rule over this world, and to redeem or save or rescue his people unto himself. And what he's telling his mother here is, I'm not ready to do that yet. It's not my hour. It's not my time to fully reveal my glory. And so he, 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 he says, dear woman, it is not my time. And yet I love how Mary finishes this section up. He says that to her, and then she said, do whatever he tells you. <laughs> Almost as if she's not listening. Um, Jesus says, it's not my time, and she says, do whatever he tells you to do. But th that would be a wrong or a terrible interpretation of that. Because what does Mary believe? Go back to, our, to what we just started with. What does Mary believe? Jesus Christ fixes the problems in my life, the problems in this world. He is the one to go to when we're lost, hurt, uncertain, scared, or confused. And so what Mary does, she's actually submitting to Jesus here. She says, whatever he says. I wash my hands of it. I give it to him. Listen to him. He could say, tough luck. <laughs> he really could. But whatever he says, listen to him. And so really, we find ourselves in this first point, and really the point that supersedes this whole passage, listen to Jesus Christ. And what happens when we listen to Jesus? What is the benefit of listening to him? When we listen to him, we get to behold his glory. That's what we see as we continue in our passage. Jesus recognizes the problem, and he has decided that he will interact with this problem. He spots six jars. We're told that they um, hold between 20 to 30 gallons of water, traditionally used for Jewish purification. These stone jars were thought to uh, be jars that couldn't be made unclean because of how they were made. Uh, they would have been for ritual washing. Um, just some real quick math, if we conservatively put the number here um, at 25 gallons, so let's, let's split the middle. Um, Jesus is asking for about 150 gallons of water to be provided. Um, and my, my brain doesn't think in gallons, so I converted that into another number. That's three bathtubs. <laughs> so Jesus is saying here, give me three bathtubs of water. Some of you may not think in bathtubs, so I converted it one more time. That's 757 water bottles. And so your Aquafina or your um, whatever it may be, that's, that's just over 750 of those. I need 750 bottle water's worth of water. And he tells the servants, go fill these to the brim. Why? why? Why is it significant that he tells them to do that? That seems like a lot, and it is. Well, it rules out some things. One, it rules out that there may have been one of the jars that had wine in it the whole time. He says, fill it to, to full so that there'll be no mistake what's in it. It also rules out a, a display of Jesus' glory that is too small. You know, if Jesus had turned a pitcher of water into wine, or he had turned a bottle of water into wine, that's pretty neat. Jesus turns three bathtubs worth of water into wine. That is significant. That, that, is, that is greater than some magician's sleight of hand. 
There's also some significance here that these are pitchers, or these are um, jars for ritual purification. This is part of the Old Testament system, the system of ritual washing, the, the system with which the Jewish people, after they had come in contact with that which was unclean or unholy, they would have to go through a process of cleansing themselves so that they could then approach God because no one can come before God um, unless they are clean. And what Jesus is, is saying here, and many scholars believe, Jesus is showing for the first time, I am that system. I am the fulfillment of what is told in the Old Testament. You want to talk about ritual washing? I'm the fulfillment of ritual washing. You want to talk about being made clean? I am the way that you are made clean. And you talk about it on a minor scale, I'm going to talk about it on a major scale. I am everything that the Old Testament has been pointing toward, looking toward, seeking fulfillment, and I will produce a result more than you can wish for or hope for or expect. You've got to love the servants in this passage. Now, we don't know if they're acting out of faith, but maybe they're just acting out of obedience. Jesus says, fill the pots. They fill the pots. Jesus says, scoop out some of, the contain, of, of what's contained inside. They scoop out what's contained inside. Jesus says, take it to the master, to the wedding planner, if you will. And they take it to the wedding planner. This was risky on their part. They were told, there's a problem, go fix it. Jesus says, this is how you fix it. What if he was making fun of them? What if this is some big joke by Jesus and he just want, he doesn't like the servers or he wants to get them fired or he wants the guy embarrassed and they run up and they've got a hand ladle of water and they're like, look, we've got wine. And he's like, that's water. But they obey. Again, showing us the importance, the significance of obedience to God. When we obey, we are blessed. How blessed are we? Well, listen to what happens here. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants did, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor. But you have kept the good until now. This tells us a lot about Jesus. Jesus has the power to rearrange things at a molecular level. Water, chemical compound, chemical makeup, H2O, two parts hydrogen, one part oxygen. And I had to look this up because it's hard to do it. But wine, and I couldn't do wine, so I did ethanol. Ethanol, which is a, uh, in alcohol, C2H6O, two parts carbon, six parts hydrogen, and one part oxygen. Any of you that have ever had to do a, how to foil um, uh, compounds or makeups, no, this cannot be foiled. Y you cannot get from one compound that's lacking carbon to another compound that is rich in carbon directly. You have to have an outside source. Somewhere you got to get carbon. And I don't mean to get too technical this morning, but I, this, I think this is important. Jesus alters the chemical reality of what is taking place. None of us can do that. We don't have the power, the ability, the knowledge, the understanding. But Jesus can say, you molecules, you rearrange yourself. Carbon, come here. I need you. 
and can take something that's one thing and completely transform it into something else. Why? Because he's God. And here's the other remarkable thing about that. Not only does Jesus take water and turn it into wine, it tastes good. It's good wine. The, the, the party planner, the wedding planner says, now wait a minute. Normally, you would serve the best first, let everybody drink of it and enjoy it, and as their taste buds are dulled as the party goes on, then you get out the cheap stuff because they won't know the difference. But you've somehow managed to save the best for last. Anything Jesus provides for us is absolutely the best. It is, it is beyond compare. It is to the, to the point that we find ourselves going, wow, where was this this whole time? I thought I'd had good wine in my life, and then I tasted what Jesus can give. There is no comparison. And I'll, I'll make just a, a minor note here, because I've, I've heard this passage um, <laughs> misinterpreted. Uh, this would have had alcohol in it. Um, Jesus didn't turn water into grape juice. Um, different compound, different mixture. Um, I want to be careful with that. And I'm not trying to intrude on any of your spiritual convictions about drinking. I take those very seriously. Uh, but the master of the feast, he would have known what wine tasted like. And he would have also known if he was served grape juice. It would have been very clear to him. He says this is good wine, not good grape juice. Um, he would have known if it wasn't. And so I just, I want you to be very careful um, with this passage. I, I've heard it preached that way. That's not the case. And there's a reason for it. There's a reason I, I make, I bring up that point. Wine actually holds a, a great spiritual significance in the Bible. Uh, many times it's brought up in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 31, 12 says, at the coming of the Lord, there will be much rejoicing in his bounty, which includes new wine. The drinking of wine was a sign, a symbol of joy. And when the Lord comes again, what they were hoping for, longing for in the Old Testament, there would be much rejoicing. Joel uh, chapter 3 verse 18 says, The mountains, this is the promised uh, land of the Lord, will drip new wine. Amos chapter 9 verses 13 and 14. The days are coming, declares the Lord, where new wine will drip from the mountains and flow from the hills. I will bring back my exiled people Israel. They will rebuild their ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. Wine was a symbol of peace in the Old Testament. It was a symbol of prosperity. It was a symbol of hope. It was a symbol of abundance. Jesus here, in a, at a moment, in an instant, turns water into 150 gallons of wine. And for the Old Testament scholar that might have been at this party, or for the disciples, they hopefully would start going back in their minds, um, Rolodexing back to, oh, the Lord was to provide an abundance of wine, of blessing, of joy, of hope, of peace, of encouragement. Uh, this Jesus guy, he seems to be able to do that. I wonder what else he can do. I wonder what greater things, if he can do something like this, what else is at store? Remember what, what Jesus told Nathaniel, um, you believe because you saw this little miracle of me telling you where you were sitting, I will show you greater things than this. 
The other reason I, I believe that, that, that this is wine and that this is significant is what's coming next. Now, hold on in the service. We'll, we'll get back to the importance of it. But Jesus has come to do all of what Scripture has, has told us will come. The Lord is coming. The day of the Lord is coming. And with it comes judgment. But with it comes hope and peace and rest for God's people. And this is but the first miracle. We've got six more to go. We're not done learning about who this Jesus is and, and what he can do. We're going to learn that he can calm storms, heal the sick, raise the dead, give sight to the blind, cleanse lepers, and most importantly, give new life to those who are walking in spiritual darkness. We're given an opportunity in this moment, as were the disciples and as were the wedding guests, to behold the glory of God. How great is God for what he can do. And so what is the consequence? What is the conclusion to that? Well, we're called to believe. We're called to believe in him, as were they. And this is our final point this morning. Verse 11 comments on the whole of the scene. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Jesus' glory. He said, my time had not yet come, but he does reveal part of his glory. He reveals a lot of his power, not all of it. He shows his mastery over this created world. And I love that sentence, that, that, end of that last sentence there. And his disciples believed. Jesus reveals himself, his disciples believe. He shows a taste of who he is, they're drawn to belief. We this morning have, have heard this recorded account, this historical record of what actually took place. Jesus Christ can transform things at a molecular level. He beckons you, believe in him. He's not just a teacher, he's more than that. And then verse 12 shows us the impact or the, 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 what this does. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Jesus won, then gathered 12, and now through his miraculous ministry, now has a greater number, a greater following. People are coming to him. They're listening to him. They're believing in him. And so we today are called to the same. And I want to zoom out, way out here for just a moment. I want to ask the questions we were asking at the start. What's the point of this parable? Um, excuse, excuse me, this is not a parable. This is a historical event. What was the point of this historical event recorded for us today? Why, why do we learn about this wedding? Well, and one commentator says this, the evangelist's primary purpose in telling this story is to show how Jesus reveals his glory and how this led people to believe in him. He hoped his readers would then be led to similar faith, which is the purpose for the gospel of John. The purpose of this historical moment, of this scene, of this miraculous transformation of water into wine is so that you would hear it and by hearing it, you would believe. 
That was the case for original audience, it was the case for the disciples, and it was the case, is the case for us today. This Jesus is compassionate to others. This Jesus is respectful to his mother. This Jesus is concerned with the instruction of the disciples. This Jesus alters reality before the eyes of onlookers. This Jesus fulfills the Old Testament and he beckons us to come. Come to him. We'll see this idea, this, this um, concept of wine and of the vine occur over and over throughout Jesus' ministry. It's, it's a theme that happens a lot, mainly because it was one that the original audience would understand. But in the natural world, and I'll conclude with this, I know a few um, families that, that own wineries. And when you want to grow grapes for wine, you start a process that takes from five to seven years. You start a, a plant and it takes up to five to seven years of cultivation before you get a grape that may be effective for producing wine. And so you wait five to seven years hoping that this will work out. And then you have your processes and you have your chemicals and you have your this and you have your that and you, you put it in all of the things that happen to make wine I'm completely ignorant of and you come out with a bottle and sometimes it has to be aged and sometimes you have to wait and at the end of the process you get to feel or, 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 or see the benefit of the fruit of your labor. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But our God is able to say, let there be and it was. Our God is able in a moment's notice to say, I want the best. I want the richest, purest, sweetest wine that could be produced, and I want it now. And if he can do that with wine, what can he do with you? What can he do with your life? What can he do with your family? What can he do with your business? What can he do with your relationships? If he can do that on a chemical level, what can he do relationally? For I tell you this, Jesus loves you a whole lot more than he loves wine. He cares for you a whole lot more than all of those trivial things. And maybe that's what we walk away from this thinking. Oh, how deep the love of Jesus. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, you are so good to us. You care for us. You love us despite ourselves. Father, we're, we're not even told the bride and groom's name in this passage. And while they may be insignificant to us and they may not matter, they matter to you. And you showed mercy to them and kept them from embarrassment and allowed them to be the vehicle in which Jesus displayed his glory. Father, may we be encouraged this day by the wedding feast. May we be encouraged this day to hope and trust and rest in you. For you can rearrange this world to according to your will. And if you can do that to this world, how much more so are you desirous of doing that in our own lives and our own hearts? Thank you, God, for this chance to stay, study your word, to sit at your feet and behold the glory of Jesus Christ. Would you continue to be with us as we sing unto you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.